One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by one of our favorite products, Almond Cow. We've been using it for well over a year, and I say we, mostly my husband, Mark, who is mooing. Honey, what are your thoughts about Almond Cow? <laughs> this is the moo man. He's back. <laughs> I love the Almond Cow because we know how great it is. Anything that you could, can make a plant-based milk with, you're set. And I just have it. I don't need to make make that much. It's just sitting in the pantry. And then when we're ready, I just make it. It takes a minute. Is it, it tastes so good. It tastes so good. And for those of you who are thinking about it, let me tell you why. There, there are no added preservatives, any kind of artificial stuff. You put in it what you want. You can sweeten it to your taste. It is so easy to make, so easy to clean up. And it's pure gold. It really is. And they give you a lot of recipes on the Almond Cow website. You have the recipe, so you don't have to think, you don't have to go anywhere to find it. It's there for you. Yes, we love it so much. So if you're interested in getting your own, go check out the link or just go to their site, almondcal.co, and you can use code LARA, L-A-R-A, for extra savings. Go get yourself one and have fun. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have a lovely, lovely, lovely new friend, Kim Tang. Kim has a lot to say about the body, the messages from the body, the chakras, the spirit, yoga, her own history, and how she's kind of welded all of her background into this alchemy of consciousness. So she is a competitor or was a competitor in yoga competitions. So she knows how to do these poses, but she really talks about like why a 10-minute wheel changed her life. You don't have to do a 10-minute wheel, but you've got to listen to the process that she took herself through. It reminded me of like when I was running a marathon and I mean, I ran a lot of marathons, but this was my first one and how I felt at mile 21, your mind will give out often before your body. And so she really talks about that. Enjoy my conversation with Kim. And as always, I am so appreciative for you all. Check out lityoga.com. Go and take our two week free trial and get yourself moving. Raise your consciousness and Tell me how this podcast goes. Welcome, Kim. 
so lovely to have you here all the way from California in your gorgeous studio there. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to knowing you better. And I'm definitely looking forward to this conversation. I am as well. So you are sitting there in this beautiful, peaceful place. I'd love to know your journey and how you got there. Because everyone yeah. always, uh, I don't think people, we all come out of the womb probably with that feeling of uh, wonder and ethereal nature and then things happen. And um, how have you kind of found your way back, back to this place, shall I say? Mm, I love the way you said that question because uh, I do have kind of a story to tell of my path. And I think that because of the way that you asked the question, I'm going to start the story when I was a child. And uh, when I was 11 years old, I actually was on a spiritual path. Um, I used to overhear my mom when I was a child saying things like, oh, she's so perceptive. She's so perceptive. And I always interpreted that to mean that I knew what the adults were talking about when they were kind of speaking in code. <laughs> but uh, when I was 11, I had a stepfather who was actually a minister of science of the mind, which is metaphysics. And when I was 11, I literally went through the two, first two years of coursework of Science of the Mind uh, with Ernest Holmes. And so then as my life would unfold, on the one hand, you could say I got a little off course. And on the other hand, you would know there are no detours, right? But uh, lo and behold, I went through my life, became a marathon runner. And then I had this friend who just kept saying to me, oh my God, you have to try yoga. You have to take this class. And she was talking about the hot, hard 90 minute class, the original hot yoga. And I used to think to myself, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, supple muscles are far less prone to injury. And so it would be good to stretch, but I got to get my cardio. I got to get my cardio, right? So I definitely had a marathon runner's mentality, a cardio mentality. And in hindsight, I can definitely tell you that that turned out to be my early meditation before I fully understood what that was, because I'd be kind of like pounding the pavement and just rhythmically breathing with my movement. And I'd notice that I was doing my very best kind of thought sorting, life planning, goal setting, you know, lots of clarity that came from that mindful movement with breath, which of course we know is yoga. So uh, I started taking this bus and I was at this place in my life where I had, you know, a lot of adversity growing up as a child and I had a lot of um, anger toward my mom. Um, she had a really rough path and made some choices that were not in my best interest as a child, really actually kind of <laughs> to my detriment as a child. And, you know, coming into adulthood, I started to realize all those things. And I was kind of mad about it. But then she had passed. And um, one day I was watching Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> and uh, Oprah said, Kim, <laughs> forgiveness is a gift you give yourself, not because the other person necessarily deserves it, but because you deserve it. You deserve to be free from this burden that you carry. And so kind of this perfect set of circumstances converging. I was in this place in my life when I was pounding the pavement and moving with breath and I was ready for forgiveness. And I started this, you know, hot yoga class. And I knew then that I 
wanted to forgive. And I knew then why I should forgive, but I didn't know how to forgive. So here I am taking this class, and I was probably taking it once a week as a beginner. And um, in this moment of readiness, I got into Ustrasana, which is camel pose. It's the deepest backbend in that class. It's kind of toward the end of the class, and I was really just ready and breathing into wide open throat chakra, wide open heart chakra, wide open solar plexus chakra. And I started just like crying. And it was really gentle. It was not demonstrative. I was not in a place of self-pity. I was experiencing this like release that I had been like desperate for <laughs> for decades. And um, now, now this is an important thing. I think I want to kind of really go into this story, not in the superficial way. So a lot of times when someone has a release in class, they kind of suck it up or they try to hide it or they try to understand it. Like, why am I crying? I have no reason to cry. Nothing happened, you know. But I recognized that this was literally some deeply embedded pain in my emotional body and my tissues that I was finally starting to get to and be able to release. And so I turned around, I lied down on my back, and I just kind of let myself cry. And I will say that after it passed, I just rejoined the class, finished the class. But here's the interesting thing. That day, actually that moment when I left that class, I actually understood number one, that I had forgiven. And number two, how to know that I had forgiven, which is a big thing. And especially because my mother had passed away. So how can I know I've forgiven someone who's no longer here, right? And so if I may, just jump jump right into that. I, yeah, I was going to say, how did you know? How, what yeah. was that? Yeah. Here's the first thing that happened. I, so I, I already told you when I was growing up, my mother, I would overhear her talking about me and she would say, she's, she's very perceptive. She's a perceptive one. And, you know, I, I kind of knew what that meant, but my entire life as a Scorpio, Sun, Aquarius, Moon, Pisces rising, King of Clubs, you know, like I, I have a nature of intensity. I'm comfortable. It's simply where I reside when I'm not trying, right? So I've always had this intensity that I've always felt like a little misunderstood for. And when you combine that with the circumstances that I grew up in, I used to hear people say to me or about me, usually in front of me, <laughs> they would say like, she's so intense. Oh my God, she's so intense. And I used to think like, what's the heck? Like, what's the matter with me? Nobody can handle me. I'm too intense, right? And so I was maybe even defensive about it and attached to my story, right? I used to make people really listen to the story. And the stories probably started before I was even born. And so I would feel like, well, you can't understand me unless you know what I've been through. You don't understand me unless you know the story, the story, the story. So in that moment of the class, when I'm crying, I'm lying on my back, and I've just had this massive release, it came with 
a massive realization that that story that I used to make people listen to. <laughs> I have to tell you something, Laura, that wasn't even my story. I had the realization, first and foremost, that that was my mother's story I was telling as my own. And the realization that children tend to be what I'm going to call developmentally narcissistic, which only means to me that everything that's happening around them, they think is happening to them. And I took her story as my own. And when I had the realization in that moment that that wasn't even my story I had been telling, that was her story, I immediately thought, oh my God, like I had extreme compassion for her. And I am going to say probably for the very first time, because I then realized how much she struggled and suffered because that actually was her life that I thought was mine. So first and foremost, it came with this deep sense of compassion. And second of all, liberation from the realization that that's her story. And by the way, mine is my own to write. And if you knew that, you wouldn't even know me because I now realize that's not me, that's hers. And that's not the story I will write. That is not my narrative. So from that moment on, like the, you know, the circumstances were as they were. And of course I remember them, but I, literally the desire to tell the story, the attachment to the story, the story as my narrative, absolutely vanished. It just dissolved. It just evaporated. I was just free from it. So it was from that moment on, you could imagine that I thought, hmm, there's something more to this yoga class. It's not just a stretch class in a hot room. Like there is a lot going on here. And so not only did I start practicing more and more and more and more and more, but I also started just reading everything I could get my hands on and not even specific to that lineage, all eight limbs of yoga, all limbs of yoga and all lineages of yoga. And I just started really checking into it. So, um, and I am going to say that my path of asana, which is the, what we think of as the yoga class where we do postures. That became an extraordinary adventure for me because I was um, introduced to this concept of these yoga asana championships where basically you're demonstrating mastery of central nervous system and the ability to stop, drop, and vortex and command everything you need and nothing that you don't with the postures that are absolutely the strongest, deepest, and most correct. And in this way, it's terrifically inspirational. And so really the purpose of the platform is to increase awareness and inspire others toward a yoga practice. So um, as my life would unfold and my yoga path would take me forward, I went all the way through the asana championships in every capacity. So I was an athlete and then I became a, a judge and a coach and a head judge and a head coach. I am uh, currently the head coach of International Yoga Sports Federation. Um, and now don't forget, I mean, there, I just said so much, like we don't even have time to unpack all of that, but let's keep going still. And I want to tell you that remember all the while that while the body is learning device for the mind in the form of asana, um, it's also the journey through the self to the self for the greater realizations of your fullest expression, most authentic truth on every level of being, you know, the kind of the 
another thing of making the unconscious conscious and unraveling the causal, the astral, the physical, all of this became a deeply, deeply spiritual path for me. And so, uh-huh, okay, so this is important. And so on my path in the way that what I'm going to call self-cultivation leads to service, I self-cultivated all the way through asana, like all asana. I like to say if you're if you reside in a musculoskeletal system in a field of gravity, I'm talking to you. So kind of like the big picture mechanics, um, biomechanics of asana are for all bodies, all lineages, all postures. And so through that deep cultivation, I tend to I tended to kind of crack the code on on all asana, and, and hence I teach it. So, and by the way, it's going to be important to say right now, there are some, I'm going to, I'm going to be a myth buster. Some people think that you have to be, for example, very um, advanced to learn from me. And you and I both know, uh, for you as well, that it's the opposite. Nothing could be farther from the truth. So the greater teacher has the greater range of ability to teach from, say, the broken, scared, stiff, maybe with prosthetics, first-timer, 70-year-old, you know, all the way through the 20-year-old flexible bindi wants to be yoga asana champion and, and everyone in between. So that is what we're talking about, breadth and scope of knowledge of all bodies, all bodies with their habitual toms, with their existing conditions, all bodies. Mm, so I love that. First of all that, but then self-cultivating all the way through spirit. And so bringing me into a moment of pure time presence in a field of trust with no judgment, um, teaching on every level of being. And so now we're talking about the causal field, which is the thought identification, the egoic construct, egoic identification of self as separate that presents through form, right? The astral plane that is the feelings and emotions, which by the way, are always in response to the thoughts and beliefs. And by the way, the body, which is the reconciliation of the two so that I oh, think that... I, uh, let's just pause there for a second because Definitely. you know I feel like we're so much on the same wavelength that the body is such a I always talk about it being like the easiest vehicle through which um, release transformation uh, transference transmit all of it can happen and I love how you said that the body is the reconciliation can you so if you were if somebody were to say Kim. I I think that yoga you're doing isn't doesn't seem really spiritual because it's very physical. How how do you explain that to them? Well, I don't need to explain it. <laughs> yeah, I know. But right. what I mean by that is, if I receive them for just five minutes, they simply know better that truth is recognized and truth is remembered. But let's stay on the subject and just unpack it a little bit more. So the body is a learning device for the mind, and that is what asana is for. It's not even about the posture. The posture is the tool we use to get there and the indication that we have. This is like, okay, I've got like five things at once. I'm going to start taking notes. And so in the way, first of all, that on a yoga mat, we're cultivating aspects of mind, self-control, determination, patience, faith, and concentration. Let's say we take a posture like Dandimana Jani Shirasana, which is standing head to knee. And we say, okay, this posture, standing head to knee, it's a tricky little balancing posture for sure. You have to be very flexible to get in that position. And you have to be very, very strong to hit it and hold it in stillness against gravity. And so the posture is a tool that we use to learn how to 
concentrate. And the ability to hit it and hold it in stillness against gravity is the indication that we have learned how to concentrate. So, and by the way, I do believe that there is no better way to learn how to concentrate than standing balancing postures in asana. But if, if I could, because I have a, a lot here I want to speak on, that is that back to the causal plane, which is, you know, um, and I always, always preface it just because I, I feel like it's appropriate to, I don't require that anyone agrees with me or believes as I do at all, but I definitely share myself fully um, through my perceptions. And so, and by the way, they're all kind of embedded deeply in the wisdom of, you know, any of the resources that we can pull up. So when you have, we're vibrational beings in a vibrational plane, and what presents as the density of, density of form is actually thought identification, the causal field. We think we are. Identification of self is separate, which by the way, is ego by definition. So we've got this causal field, we've got the astral field, and the body is the reconciliation of the two. And so everybody has heard it said, you know, your body is a sacred temple. And they kind of, I think, loosely interpret it to mean that, oh, you should take care of it and you should keep it pure and, and healthy. And of course, all of those things are true, but I think there's some far more deeply embedded wisdom there. And that is that you are at the core of your being, compilation of thought that presents as density through identity and then form, and by the way, and then out into relation. So you've got the thought identification, you've got the astral plane, which is your feelings and emotions in response to the thought identification, and then the body, the sacred temple, is the reconciliation. So in the way that the body is the sacred temple, any presentation of disease, injury, illness, diagnosis, by the way, even habitual tone and accidents are an indication as to where the spiritual work lies in the life. So I am teaching people what I'm going to call on every level of being. I'm seeing them as who they are in truth. And even when they tell me they're broken and they're limited and they can't do this and they're unworthy and they're unlovable, I am knowing that that's not the truth. It's not who I'm speaking to. And um, that is another resource that I use when I teach is I look at habitual tone and I teach them how to, okay, so look at, because you know this, I know you know this. And that is that sometimes people have a habitual tone or that shows up in a posture or just in the way they stand, the way they walk, that is misaligned or say an uneven distribution of body weight or something like that. And they feel actually normal, natural, and comfortable because it's their habitual tone. Sometimes you bring them into alignment and it feels crazy. Like, what? That's alignment? Yep, that's the that's the line of agreement. Wow, that feels so unnatural. It feels so uncomfortable. So, of course, in the way of structure, asana, form, it matters because we're trying to have them be in a spacious position of alignment that comes to feel normal, natural, and comfortable. So in that way, we rehabituate the tone. But I wanted to go deeper into the, the original question of, of this part of it. And that is that you have, I mean, it, it depends on what scientist you listen to. My favorite scientist says 100 trillion. They all say different numbers. You have 100 trillion cells in your body and every single 
one of them is under the command of your consciousness, right? And by the way, there's that word again, command. So that's now it, it brings us into that journey to the self through the self, whether it's through asana, whether it's through breath work or meditation or whatever the modality is, or even if there is a modality, that level of self-awareness can be reached um, where you have the ability then two things, two super important things. I think the most important things are number one, what I'm going to call stop, drop, and vortex, command everything you need and nothing that you don't. So in other words, tuning out the incessant chatter. That might be something we talk about next. And then the other is to have mastery of literally your central nervous system through breath is a bridge between mind and the body. So through the, the breath being the bridge, the connection between mm. your mind, consciousness, command, and the body. Now, what would you say is one of the biggest blockages or obstacles for people um, in getting to that place of more, uh, that reconciliation? <laughs> I'm going to say, um, believe it or not, just I'm just going to say the two first things that come to my mind. The first one most certainly is fear. It's uh, who we think we are, what we've chosen to learn through, limiting beliefs, and uh, I'm going to call it agreements made in fear in relation. So number one is fear is the biggest blockage. And number two is accountability, right? So there's a certain belief that you need to hold to be true about yourself in order to self-empower enough. Because, 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 think of how many people, like manifestation is a, is a very popular word, but to fully understand what that means, it's not just about like, oh, stuff and things, I'm going to manifest a car, right? It's like, that's not what it is. It's, I mean, that's the most superficial aspect of what it is. Let's put it that way. So I'm going to say that the accountability um, is a matter of, which way do I want to go with this? Okay. Accountability for the circumstances in your life. To understand that we could call it your life is your most curated lesson. It's a custom lesson. It's by design. It's as unique to you as your own fingerprint. And by the way, that's why I can't fully learn from your life and your lessons because those are designed for you. And you can't fully learn from my life and my lessons because those are designed for me. So as I start to understand that my life is my lesson and then everything that I see before me is the indication of what's active within me and I start to navigate with some accountability. Oh God, I, cre I co-created that by default or I created that by default. So when you start to actually understand how accountable you are and even how powerful you are, even if it is by default, then you start to understand, oh, I could get really deliberate about the creation that is my life and think of what I could do then. So I'm going to say accountability is massive and fear is massive in the way of what are the obstructions that stop us. And the way that that shows up in the way of manifestation is somebody might, and I'm going to kind of like, I, you know, let me know, like if I'm talking fast, I'm going to kind of speak into it as if you know what I'm saying. And if we need to stop there, we will. But sometimes people are just asking for something kind of like again and again and again and again and again and again which means like they're asking from a place of not having and then it comes to them 
And if it comes to them, then it comes to them. And sometimes they don't even recognize it when it is standing right before them, or they recognize it, receive it, and then they don't have the frequency to maintain it. So what I mean by that is that they've made a claim for themselves that they actually cannot allow, right? And then they go like, oh, it doesn't work or <laughs> something like that. So, um, yeah, let's pause there and have a check-in and see where you want to go with that. Well, I was going to say, is it because they don't allow it or they're not prepared for it? You know, some ideas that like, I need this, I need this, I want this as an idea, as a construct that isn't actually, in fact, what they need. Let's, let's say both. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that comes from what I'm going to call thought obstruction. Thought obstruction is a huge part of the plan of expanding the consciousness. So, um, for example, um, I know someone who was actually kind of like literally handed a yoga studio. Um, somebody just said, take it over. It's yours. And she, so she kind of stepped into this dream situation. And just for a just for a hot second there, only for a hot second, in all fairness, um, she, it's one of those things, be careful what you ask for, you just might get it, right? She kind of stepped in all of a sudden as this studio owner who might or might not have known exactly what's entailed in that. And then it was a little bit overwhelming. And so kind of like the thought obstruction comes in, which by the way is vibrational, thought is vibration. So it's a little bit, oh my God, the students, the teachers, oh my God, the bills, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It, a little bit obstruction, 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 like I didn't know what I was asking for. And now that I have it, I'm not sure that I want it. And kind of like your reaction to receiving what you've asked for, if that reaction has resistance and obstruction, then that would be a vibration that wouldn't be able to sustain or maintain the frequency of holding. Now, just just so you know, in that story, that was just a hot adjustment and she like is thriving and it's fantastic. But this is just a an easy example to see how we stop ourselves, block ourselves, cancel ourselves out with, we ask for something that we can't allow, we ask for something that we don't recognize when it comes, something like that. Hi friends, I'm reminding you we have an upcoming Lit Europe tour and we would love for you to join us, whether you live in Europe or not. Get on to these workshops. Maybe travel with us and go from one place to another. I mean, we're going to Paris. We're going to Frankfurt, Germany. Then we're heading to Salzburg, Austria. We're going to have the best time. And we would love to see you. There's nothing like an in-person workshop experience to fine-tune your movement. Get some real educational nuggets for better movement on and off the mat. And by the way, we have the best time together. We would love to give you a hug and help you move your best and feel your best. So join us in Europe this summer. Check out the show notes for all the details. Now, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I have a feeling I know, but in terms of that, um, in a lot of ways, that ability to not handle what is comes to you is maybe not being present because you've always been thinking of like what you want in the future, what you want in the future, what you don't have now. And then it's this, um, the practice of really being present and conscious is perhaps just not hardwired enough. If, how many people do you think, um, how much, or I guess I'd say, how much do you think from your own experience and from teaching, like suffering 
some degree of suffering enables us to be clearer. Uh -huh. Okay, I'm making notes because we have yes. a lot to talk about. Something unique about humans. I really want to say this one first before I lose it. Something unique about humans is, well, two things. One is a stifling of authenticity. And here's like the first way that it happens, the first level of blocking ourselves from our truth. And that is that we have a thought and we feel a certain way. And we know that we feel a certain way, but we shut ourselves down. We say, oh, no, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel that way. I should just feel grateful. I should just be happy. I should just feel lucky. And we really force a should upon our truth. And that is masking our authenticity. Our emotions are our um, emotional guidance system. Our feelings are our emotional guidance systems. They're the seat of intuition, by the way. But the other part is this. Humans, through the mind construct and the central nervous system, we can literally have a thought and our central nervous system is in reaction to the thought, number one, as if it's true, and number two, as if it has already happened or is happening now. So your thought can be something in the past that is unresolved, and you can continue the anxiety that was with it in the moment of the trauma through your relationship to it as you bring it up over and over. You can have anxiety about something that hasn't happened yet. It's quite literally a projection of your fear into the future. It's literally a figment of your imagination, but your central nervous system can go full alert as a response to the thought that it even would happen, even if it didn't or never will. So um, that is one one cause of suffering, by the way, is not only the thoughts that are fear-based thoughts and the egoic projection of the past into the future and the central nervous system reaction to it, like, like this is a lot. So that alone is an element of suffering, but our response to our thoughts is also an element of suffering. And I want to keep going, but I want to give you an example right here. So um, there are, you know, I, um, you know I, don't, I don't know that you and I really have delved each into each other's lives and histories and practices, but I'm kind of like the queen of the universe of backward bending. And I've done a lot of it in the deepest, and I've done it every which way you can do it, from the top down and the ground up and the back to the front and the front to the back. And I've done the deepest feet together, legs locked, headbutt, and I don't even concern myself so much with, look what I've done, look what I can do. It's the opposite. I share myself in the way of, let me tell you what I learned from this backbend. Let me tell you what I learned from that backbend. And there's one that's really relevant in this moment, in this context, and that is, there was a time when I was practicing, of course, a lot of very, very young, very active yoga. And then I started transitioning into a lot of practice and teaching of yin. And I immediately realized and recognized that not only are these just, you know, different practices that have different postures and you execute them a little differently, I recognized it as a different consciousness entirely. So for example, a very yang practice 
is going to affect change by contracting at the edge. And, okay, and very yin practice is affecting change, by the way, by surrendering. Um, so the yin in practice, again, is not just different postures and the way you execute them, but it's about affecting change by surrendering at the edge with how much can you relax? Can you relax more? Can you relax more? And then just chasing the edges. So I understood that it was difference of consciousness. I thought to myself, well, <laughs> what if I take a yin approach, a yin consciousness approach to some very yang postures? And so, for example, in a hot 26 and 2 90 minute class, Camel, Ustrasana, is the deepest backbend in the class. And a long hold of Camel is going to be about, a, like a really long hold is going to be about a minute long. And I thought, well, if I was practicing with a different consciousness, how long could I hold, say, a wheel, a backbend? So I thought to myself, I'm going to start, I'm just going to pick a number out of thin air. I don't know where to start. I'm going to try to hold a wheel for three minutes. And I set my timer and I, you know, pushed into it and I just relaxed as much as I could. And the three minute clock went off and I was like, oh my God, I was so inspired because I knew that that was a lot, but I could do more. So I almost immediately worked my way up to a five minute wheel. And by the time I did a five minute wheel, I knew I was going for 10. And so in this 10 minute wheel, everything changed. I started to understand exactly what's going on. So we hear, we hear it said constantly, you are not your thoughts and the thoughts are not true. But let me tell you what that means. I pushed into this wheel knowing that I had worked my way up to it and now I was going for 10 minutes. And after about seven minutes in, my thoughts started saying to me, you have to come out. You can't do this anymore. That's enough. Quit. You have to come out. And I said to myself, well, wait a minute. I'm not the thoughts. I'm the observer of the thoughts and the thoughts are not true. And so I'm going to see what can I relax, right? I'm going to conserve my energy and shift the weight around and give myself some permissions. So the mind was telling me, quit, quit, quit. The muscles were fatiguing. But three minutes later, I knew everything I needed to know. And that was that, in fact, the thoughts are not true. The thoughts are limiting beliefs. And the body, again, will do virtually every single thing you tell it to do. And I am going to say therapeutically, self-compassionately, patiently, mindfully, and consistent, consistently, and, you know, so on and so on. But after I did that 10-minute wheel, I, I wrote a blog. And normally when I'm posting, I'm post, you know, I'm that cryptic Scorpio, like my posts are short and sweet and they're always for me anyway. But this one was really important to speak on. So I wrote a lengthy blog about everything that that was, holding a wheel the first time for 10 minutes. And I described it as like doing a wheel on a fault line and having like spinal fluid dripping out of my third eye. Like this was crazy. But I knew that there was more for me. So anyway, I trained and trained and went on to hold the wheel for an hour. 
It took a long time, slowly, patiently, consistently, mindfully, but it was the lesson of the mind that you are not your thoughts and your thoughts are not true. And so there's that command. And um, again, by the way, learn it on the mat to use it in your life so that when you have those limiting thoughts in your life, you start to realize and be able to discern, wait a minute, that's not true, actually. And I'm the observer of the thoughts. The thoughts aren't true. I'm going to just breathe, relax, right? I feel like and this is like people like training for underwater breathing or training for cold plunging. You know, it's just like, what is going to give way first? The, the thoughts that say, I got to get out of this or just being able to um, manage them and actually realize that that you can, you know, that they, like you said, they can be a block. Yes, to what you said, because the original question was, how much of our suffering are we responsible for? And I'm going to say kind of like, in a way, like in a way, I'm going to say like most of it, right? Because that thought I have to come out, boom, here's what happens. I've trained a lot of people to do that. And I have to tell them, this is not about how long you can hold a wheel. This is about, for example, how long you can hold a wheel from the, from the time your mind says, I have to quit. I can't do it anymore. Right? That's when it starts. <laughs> and so in the way of this thing that I do with, um, you, you know, asana, kind of asana coaching, I'm going to tell you that there's a phrase that I use commonly, and this is also um, contributing to part of the suffering. There's this thing that I call catching up to who you have become. And what that means is, of course, as teachers, you and I, we do this thing where we say, start where you're at, do what you can, always and only with breath and with form. And then maybe we give them, we start them exactly where we're at, where they are at, because we know that they can start there. And then we give them just like spoon feeding the millimeters. We give them like a little bit of something to reach for. And if they reach for it, then they'll achieve it. And so we've set them up for success. And then we give them another millimeter and then another and then another and so on. And so let's say, for example, that someone has been um, dedicated to a consistent practice of trying to make the bodies, you know, I call it stronger, deeper, more correct, more open, stronger, understanding, you know, the self-awareness of being able to single out the pieces and command them independently, being able to contract what's required to support yourself in the posture and relax everything else, which in every posture is your face and your mind and your breath and your neck and most back bends, you know, <laughs> like, like all of this. And then they get a posture, they, something that they've been dreaming of, you know, posture execution. They've been dreaming of being able to do this dream posture and they've been working and working and spoon feeding the millimeters and becoming stronger and deeper and more correct and more self-realization in the tissues. And then they get the posture and then sometimes they have a thought response to getting the posture that knocks them out of it. Um, and then even the next day, they kind of start, I'm going to call it like took a few steps back in their starting point. Like they kind of, even though they've raised the bar and now they have this posture, they kind of go back to identifying as this person who doesn't have this posture, right? So it's that ma that matter of what I call catching up to who you have become. You have this now. You've raised your own bar, right? Now, oh, by the way, now um, effort moves toward ease. The more you do it, the better it feels. And the better it feels, 
the more you do it. And the more you do it, the better it gets. And the better it gets, the better it gets. And so what used to, uh um, what used to take, say, an hour to warm up for is now there for you in 15 minutes or, or something like that, safely, therapeutically, effectively, and all of the things. Um, I want to tell you that this is what I call learning in the way of asana, by the way, but yoga's life, um, learn it on the mat to use it in the life. The body is the learning device for the mind. So what we're doing is learning to work with the mind as the friend. And in the way of a very dedicated, lengthy, sustainable practice, you understand that no two days are alike, even if the postures remain the same. And some days your mind, uh, let's say it this way, some days your body wants it, but your mind doesn't. And some days your mind wants it, but your body doesn't. So, and we'll speak into those. Some days, both your body and your mind want it. That's a really good day. Some days, neither your mind nor your body want it. And that is a good day off. Now, in the days that your, let's say your body wants it, but the mind doesn't, you've got to learn how to clear the jungle, right? And that's the second time I've had the thought that there's this other thing I want to talk about. But sometimes you have to clear the jungle with a machete. Hmm. And sometimes you have to clear the jungle with a scalpel, right? And then some days your mind wants it, but the body doesn't. And that's that start where you're at, do what you can. So you might just have to back off on your starting point, but after number one, you know, you're smooth sailing. It's just that kind of mental resistance that you have to break through. And then you'll end up kind of probably the same or even deeper as you've, as you've ever been. And how do so, you feel like that um, translates into life? That practice of like knowing how to manage the different, the disparate parts when they're not really speaking to each other. Yeah, I think it's a matter of recognizing our own resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and by the way, there it is again, like accountability that everything you see is the indication of what's active within you and it's happening um, for you, not to you. And so really being in a place of presence, there's the breath again, just presence and not in a place of resistance or understanding, by the way, to discern your feelings with respect to it, to find out it's for me, it's not for me. And if it's not for you, then that resistance is really valuable information. I'm curious if you have somebody that came to you and and historically many, many years has been, I, I can't do that. Oh, no, I can't, you know, blah, blah. a lot of like kind of walls of, blah, of I, what, how do you get somebody to start to soften that resistance and change. My experience, because that happens a lot, because they look at, you know, one of my pictures and they make an assumption. And then when I ask them to do something that I absolutely know that they can do, and they go, oh, no, I can't. I have a clear realization and recognition that they're not understanding what I'm asking them to do and that they think that I'm asking them to do something different than what I'm asking. So always what I do is let them know that I'm asking them to do something that they already can do and I show it to them and they go, oh, you mean just that? Yeah, absolutely, just that. 
because that's that start where you're at. Because then when they realize, oh, oh, you mean that? Uh-huh. I'm asking you to do something that I know you can do, and this is where we're going to start. So what happens frequently is people look at the picture of a posture that I do, and they're comparing their A to my Z or something like that. And I'm not asking them to do Z. And I'm also not asking them to do M. If you understand the alphabet reference, I'm asking them to do A because A goes to B. And by the way, then when they do B, B goes to C, and that's the way I teach them. So part of it is their, uh, how, about, how about my accountability? Part of it is my realization that they think that I'm asking them to do something other than what I'm asking. So the communication is my responsibility to say, no, no, here's what I'm asking you to do. Let me see you just do this and then show them, oh, just do that. Yes. Okay, perfect. Now just do this. Oh, and then the resistance is cleared. Mm, okay, good. They're making an assumption that you're asking them to do something beyond their level, but you're not. I think that, I mean, I think that's a very good point to make because, um, you know, as a teacher, it is our job to try um, to be as welcoming to everyone and knowing that their people are coming in with their own ideas of what they're capable of, um, own histories in their bodies that may or may not make them more comfortable or less comfortable doing things. And so it is, uh, it's, I think that's why being a teacher makes you a better communicator because you really have to be very clear that you're just teaching a pathway and that there's a, like you, like you can hit your A or you can be a D or whatever it is, but everybody can be doing something on that pathway. It just might be looking different. Yeah, Laura, you're speaking into something that's even even bigger, maybe. Um, so I have taught a lot of kids and I've also taught a lot of adults. And one of the primary differences between kids and adults is that for the most part, when you say to a child, okay, do this, then they do it. And with adults, not only when they come into a yoga class, and let's say that they've been out of school for a while, which is a fair assumption, right? They're not just learning postures. They're actually learning how to learn. And therein lies a facet of thought obstruction and resistance, the ego, the fear of, for example, falling out of a posture, standing balancing posture, something like that. So we're not just teaching them the posture, we're teaching them how to learn again. And fear will stop them dead in their tracks. That's the egoic construct because they're afraid to fall. They equate falling with failing, which is definitely not in my um, perception. I believe that the more you fall, the more you learn, and the more you learn, what the less you fall, right? And so what that would look like is, again, let's use standing head to knee as a great example of that. So I'll see someone with kind of like a perfect step one, standing leg lock, suck your stomach in, stretch up, round down, pick up the foot, you know, lock the knee. And step two, perfect kick out, upside down now like Linda, both legs locked, um, elbows down. And so they're like, step one, check, perfect. Step two, check, beautiful. Step three, well done. Now, relax your neck, suck your stomach in, chin chest, touch your forehead to your knee. And they're, they're like looking in the mirror, like shaking their head, no, 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 no. What do you mean no? Because like your step one is perfect. And by the way, like, your step two is perfect and your step three, you're ready. You're ready. What's happening? 
do you have an injury I need to know about? Does something hurt? Is there, is there anything I need to know? No, no. They just don't want to do it. So they're afraid of falling. So to give them permission to fall and to help them understand that falling doesn't mean failing. It just means lock your knees, set your gaze, suck your stomach in and pick up your foot again, pick up your foot again, pick up your foot again, pick up your foot again. And by the way, that's, you know, yoga's life. Learn it on the mat, use it in the life. That's another life lesson. You go out there in the real world, so-called real world, and you understand how your fear stops you dead in your tracks. Your fear of falling, you're perceiving falling as failing. So you're not willing to try because you're not willing to fall, which you perceive as failing. That's a construct of the ego, right? So that's something we can uh, circumvent through being in a space with a teacher where there is a field of trust with no judgment and someone supporting you in that moment that you're afraid and you're letting your fear stop you. So what do you feel like um, having gotten to this place or what, you know, on the path to where you are right now, where, where you aren't letting fear for the most part, I would imagine, stop you. What has that opened up for you? Like, tell us about your life right now and how that, yeah, thank you. that is thank a represent. You. Yeah. Yeah. It feels personal, but I'm all about it. Uh, I am on a and unapologetic. Oh my God, it's such a full circle conversation. I love it when we circle back around like that. I am unequivocally and unapologetically my most authentic truth um, as a result of letting go of fear. Fear is always related to fear of loss. We're afraid we'll lose something. Um, we're afraid we'll lose a job or security or stability or the way that someone sees us or thinks of us or some aspect of ourself that we value, right? There's always, fear is always in some way a fear of loss. And then when you start to understand that it's rather than like holding on to what you're afraid of losing, there's more to receive by not staying small and agreeing to the limitations and, and all of those things. So I've come into a moment through letting go of fear, and I've had a I've had a lot of scary stuff for sure. <laughs> and um, I'm going to say that as a result of letting go of fear, um, I am fully expressed on every level of being, and as my most authentic truth. And if I could tell you what I mean by that, fully expressed on the level of the mind. And what that means is I, I freely and lovingly share myself in the form of what I'm going to call the outpicturing of my consciousness. So in other words, you and I in relation, in engagement, you say something to me and I receive it and I filter it through my perception and I decide what will I say in response. And so I take something and I put it in a package with a bow and I neatly, lovingly and properly wrap it and hand it to you and it's my contribution, right? It's the outpicturing of my consciousness. And to feel that I am free to do that is definitely an indication of letting go of a lot of fear, but also being fully expressed on the level of feelings and emotions to be able to, because obviously now we're talking about chakras, to be able to actually connect to your truer And by the way, come from love and feel safe to say and to care as much about how you feel as you care about the feelings of the one with whom you're sharing what might even be a very difficult truth. And then you start to understand that, in fact, 
instead of being afraid of telling a truth because you're afraid something will be lost, you start to understand the, the opposite, that honesty is the deepest form of intimacy and to have the ability to connect with a human and speak your highest truth with so much love and respect for yourself and for them becomes a very liberating experience. And then to express yourself on the level of spirit, just the inner realm, the journey through the self to the self, between you and you. And um, by the way, if you're in relation then, the ability, oh, I should say that first then, to be loved, by the way, for exactly what you're sharing, when you're fully expressed through your most authentic truth on every level of being. To be absolutely loved for that, that's what I want for me, for you, and for actually for all of humanity. That's where our true union lies. So, and then in relation, I would say that kind of the connection on the level of the mind and the spirit and the feelings, the physical expression is the natural response. The desire for physical connection is the natural response of the connection on all the other levels. And so it's a, I'm going to say it's a higher truth and a higher way of being. And I could only achieve that by letting go of fear for sure. I think everybody, everybody that has any kind of relationship probably have, has, has to do that, right? Because there's always, like you said, the what if, the potential for loss, the potential for whatever it might be. And it's just, you have to be um, courageous and clear with yourself that, that you're not going to know what's going to happen, but what, you've got to live in the, the absolute present moment in, in that real authentic way. Yeah. Even just that, you've got to live in that present moment, again, letting go of an ego, a construct of a thought response to something that is said, and the thought response is based in history, or the thought response is based in projection of the past into the future. So even just that little one-liner, you've got to be really present, means really sitting in pure time, accountable for receiving in presence, not in history, receiving in presence, not in projection into the future, and therefore the response to it, right? It's, I think that most of spirituality is accountability. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, I could talk to you forever, um, but where can where can people find out more about you, um, study with you, look you up when, you're, when they're out in the desert in California? Tell us about all the offerings that you have. Oh, thank you for the question, and I wanna say, I hope you'll have me back because I knew before we got together that this would be it. I understand. I mean, redefining yoga. Give me a break. I, you are me. <laughs> you are we. I, you know, I'm Scorpio, by the way. I don't know if you uh, knew that. Ah. When Scorp is your birthday? Uh, Halloween. Halloween. Incredible. When okay. is yours? No, 1107. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know what they say about Scorpios? It's kind of funny. This may or may not be true. And I'm on the cusp. So it's like, I can kind of, but it's like uh, nobody, everybody that's watching um, or not watching, essentially they'll say October Scorpios and they're like on the dance floor and they're like November Scorpios brooding. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll be the, I'll be the dancer. But it's so funny to think, yeah, okay, brooding, the because, you know, we're just intense. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that word intense the word intense is misunderstood. I think it's great to be intense. It means yeah. I'm like fully engaged is maybe a yeah. better word. Yeah, fully. my intensity is my superpower. It's the way mm -hmm. I've done everything I've ever done. 
So yes to yes. that. Yeah. Okay. So, so we have a lot in common. Yeah. So go ahead. Tell us about yeah, you. And thank you for the question. I do intuitive spiritual counsel and we lead a spiritual study group called of source with satsang and I do quantum healing hypnosis technique and alchemy meditation, alchemy of breath. So all things spirit and most of the people understand that the two are one and the same, yoga and spirit. So people are really coming into the realization of that. Something else that delights me to tell you is that our place here is called Yakashala. So I've got all the Ys and all the Ss all over the place. I've got the yoga and the spirit and a Venn diagram, and it all takes place in person at the Yakashala. So we have kimtangyoga.com, and we have yakashala.com. And pretty much all of that can currently be found on those two platforms. Um, eventually, I'll probably have to single those out with different social medias, just so people can understand better what it is. But yeah. I, I think that's I think that's the simplest way I can explain it. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to come visit the Yakashala myself. And so thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And I can't wait to know you in person here. Yeah, yeah thank we'll you be out there. Thank you. And everybody who's listening, as always, I'm pulling for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.